The central purpose of this podcast is to bring the people of our nation together and heal the wounds of our divisions through compassion and understanding. Not really, but it's fun to play pretend. And sometimes I know in the heat of our political disagreements, it can begin to seem that those on the left side of the political aisle are nothing more than a degraded and self-deceived coven of moral deviants wallowing in the muck of their perversity while inventing lunatic theories to explain away their demonic evil as they're egged on to heights of hysterical irrationality by scheming leaders who expertly play the keyboard of their emotional disorders to convince them that virtue lies in destructive policies that fill politicians' pockets with the hard-earned money of better men at the same time increasing the power of a corrupt government until American freedom is gone and humanity is plunged into a thousand years of darkness before it can even attempt to relight the sacred flame of liberty. But when you calm down and step back a little, you can begin to see that leftists have some good points too. Some of them wear very attractive socks and some of their women have pretty names like Honoria or Jim. But if you want to move toward real compromise and unity, I believe it helps to take a serious and objective look at leftist philosophy so you can begin to develop a true understanding of what these toxic dunderheads are prattling on about. For instance, what does the left actually believe when it comes to gender? Why do leftist men wear dresses and pretend to have periods? Why won't leftist women bring you a damn sandwich so you don't have to keep getting up in the middle of the game? Also, all this child grooming, what's that about? What are they, perverts? Well, yes, they are. But also, they have a theory developed by their greatest academic minds and then written down on a lunch tray with a crayon after they've had their meds and it's nap time in the day room. According to leftist gender theory, there is absolutely no difference between men and women. And men can become women if they feel like women who are absolutely the same as men. So if they do feel like women, they're the same as men and can save money on nail polish. Gay men are men who like other men who are the same as women, so that gay men are straight, unless they're trans, in which case they're gay women who like other women who are the same as men. So basically they're men who like women and could have just started a family without babbling all that gender theory crap. What about race? I'm sure you've heard many leftists say critical race theory is not being taught in our schools, and you've probably wondered, what is critical race theory and why do they keep lying about it? Well, Critical race theory holds that race is a social construct that doesn't really exist, and it's all the fault of white people. CRT says that people should be treated equally and should not be forced to adopt white people's ideas like people should be treated equally. Most importantly, critical theorists point out that some dead white people, a social construct that doesn't exist, used to hold some dead black people, who also didn't exist, as slaves. And so living white people who don't exist should give living black people who don't exist money because the dead black people don't need it and the living black people would like some money. Finally, there's the question of abortion. Leftists feel that it's moral to abort a baby up until the moment of birth because after birth, you can see the baby's face and can no longer lie to yourself about what you're doing. They feel abortion is a health decision, although obviously not for the baby. But the baby does not become an actual person until it can dial 911 and say, help, my mother's trying to kill me. Before that, it's just part of a woman's body. It's the part that's a baby hoping his mother accidentally sits on her phone so he can dial 911. 
Now that you understand leftist theory, I'm sure the next time you see a leftist, you'll be able to greet him with a smile and a big wave, which hopefully will distract him as you sidle out the door and run for your life. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-dee. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, we are back laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. Today we're going to talk about policing and race with the one and only Heather McDonald, great, great reporter. Uh, the true history of how the FBI and the Department of Justice became the most corrupt and freedom-threatening group of thugs on in our country anyway. Uh, it's actually a very surprising story. Uh, this is a good time for you to subscribe to the Andrew Clavin YouTube channel, my personal YouTube channel, where you will get exclusive content. If you ring that little bell, uh, just keep ringing it, keep ringing it until you hear something. If you don't, just keep keep doing it, keep doing it uh, until finally someone tells you that I was kidding. If you leave a comment on the Andrew Clavin YouTube channel and your comment is despicable, uh, if it's the kind of thing that will get us thrown off channels and, and banned and you know all the rest, uh, we'll read it on the air because because, you know, we're tired of this. Anyway, uh, today's comment is from Colin Johnson. He says, I'm happy I found you. I consider you a mentor. Thank you. Even though you slightly resemble Smeagol from The Lord of the Rings, but only the between stage from Hobbit to whatever the hell he became. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm going to stick with hot Gandalf for now, I think, uh, for some reason. I'm not sure. Hey, did you know Valentine's Day coming up? Until I read that sentence, neither did I. You need GenuCell skincare for the first time ever. Every order at GenuCell.com from now until Valentine's Day includes a free beauty box with two luxury gifts. Here's the box, and here may be some of the gifts. They just introduced their new microbiome moisturizer, which uses the power of probiotics to target skin redness, pesky wrinkles, fine lines, patchy blotches, and other signs of premature aging. These are the same probiotics that are in your yogurt. As it turns out, probiotics are not just good for digestion. They can have the same nourishing benefits on your skin. See results in 12 hours or get your money back. Guaranteed. My talent manager, Tessa, uses GenuCell under-eye treatment. I'm telling people are kicking the door down to get near Tessa just to look at her. Right now, you can get GenuCell's most popular package for 70% off, as well as your two free luxury gifts. Visit GenuCell.com slash Clavin and get 70% off with your free gifts. Use code Clavin at checkout to have this applied to your account. That's GenuCell.com slash Clavin. GenuCell.com slash, wait, how do you spell that? How do you spell that Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Cleveland. There are no E's in Cleveland. Uh, all right, let's talk about the death of Tyree Nichols uh, in Memphis. And we, we, the things we say about it here will be a little bit different than the things we've heard elsewhere because uh, they'll be true. Uh, Nichols, 29, he worked for FedEx. He died after he was stopped uh, uh, in a traffic stop by five Memphis uh, Tennessee police officers who were members of an elite anti-crime task force called Scorp Scorpion. Uh, they beat him and he died of his wounds and they've been charged with murder. And they released uh, a video of this, it's hours of video really, but we'll just play a little bit here, about 30 seconds. Get the up. Get the up. up. Damn, I didn't do anything. Hey, I didn't turn your ass around. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right. All right, all right. 
Alright, I'm on the ground. Lay down! Lay down! Please so it it looks really brutal. I'm not going to come to any final decisions. Obviously, there's always more information to be had, uh, but it looks brutal. It looks like they're shouting so many different uh, things at him that he can't possibly obey, and they just beat him, and he and he dies. Um, so. Uh, and the Mr. Nichols uh, and the cops are all black men, uh, but that doesn't stop people from calling it a racial issue. Uh, here's a clip from Nichols' uh, funeral. There's a big deal. The vice president attended, and here is uh, Al Sharpton. This cut seven. How do you have the same department that can keep crime down on one side of town without beating folk to death, but you can't do it on the other side of town unless you feel that you can get away with it there? can't speak for everybody in Memphis. I can't speak for everybody gathering. But for me, I believe if that man had been white, you wouldn't have beat him like that that night. Now, I, I despise Al Sharpton. I think he's responsible for many uh, from actual deaths. He has blood on his hands because of the evil uh, rhetoric he has used in certain situations to boost himself, the lies he's told, the anti-Semitism he's expressed. Uh, but he's asking the question, why can they keep um, you know, crime down on uh, the white side without violence and on the black side, not so much. And again, that video looked like really bad policing to me. But let's remember that there are 330 million people in this country, maybe 750,000 cops. That's the population of San Francisco. Uh, if 1% of those cops is bad, that's going to be, uh, you know, 7,500 uh, cops. And since we see everything from every part of this enormous nation, you're going to see a lot of uh, acts of violence. But only some of those acts of violence are brought uh, into the limelight. For instance, there was a death uh, in Dallas uh, of a guy named Tony Timpa. He was 32. Uh, he suffered from depression and schizophrenia. He called the police because he had not taken his meds. He was in a parking lot. He needed assistance, uh, and he was afraid. He was unarmed. He'd already been handcuffed by local security, but the police pinned him to the ground by his shoulders, knees, and necks. He pleaded with them. He screamed, you're going to kill me. Uh, they held him in that hold for 13 minutes until he lost consciousness. Uh, then they laughed at him while he lay there and died. This was uh, 2016. Now, that description comes from Douglas Murray's excellent uh, book, his latest book, The War on the West. And Douglas goes on to say that it took years for the truth about this to come out. Um, I think it was the Dallas Morning Herald brought it up, but the officers weren't charged and a suit against them was thrown out. Uh, one of them retired. The other four are still on duty. So, you know, there is a difference in, in the way these cases are uh, treat, treated. And you know, the difference is Tony Temple was white. So nobody had an, a, a, a reason to blow it up into a racial incident. So, you know, this is a real thing. Ty uh, Tyree Nichols is dead. He's a son. He's a father. The grief is real. Uh, the parents were very good about coming out and asking that there be no violence during protests. Uh, but we also have, so that's a, a real thing that's really happened. But we also have a narrative that's happening, which is this is somehow about race. And, you know, people some say, well, if, if it's all black people, if the officers are black and the guy's black, what does it have to do about race? Well, the left have a theory. Again, this is a theory they have about this. Uh, the woman, Erica Smith, on the LA Times, who called Larry Elder the black face of white supremacy, she says, white supremacy is an ideology, a hierarchy of racial power that has been an integral part of this country since its founding, whether Americans want to acknowledge it or not. 
Anyone of any race can be a prop, a tool, or an enabler of white supremacy. And there have always been volunteers because proximity to whiteness often pays. So whiteness is a, a actual thing, a quality, and you can acquire it by being near it. Uh, and if you disagree, the, basically the theory is that white supremacy is a series of attitudes, and the left defines what they are. Erica defines what they are, and anyone who disagrees with her about this is white, and white is bad, right? Now, I want to say something else about the disparities between whites and blacks. It's not just that a white man being killed by the cops gets no press whatsoever, uh, and a a black guy becomes a a racial issue. Uh, I also want to say something about Memphis. And if you live in Memphis and you love it there, uh, uh, forgive me, I was there for one day. I'm sure there are many lovely parts of it. Uh, All I know is it was one of the ugliest American cities I have ever seen, not in terms of uh, structure, but in terms of the people on the ground. Uh, I wanted to see the jazz clubs, and I was told at my hotel, you can't go there at night. And I said, well, because it's going to a jazz club during the day. I took a walk uh, to see the area where the jazz clubs were, and I was afraid. I was afraid for my safety. Uh, A lot of, like, lurking, you know, sullen, baleful, uh, thuggish people, all of whom— we're black, and I think all of us know that there are many, many neighborhoods in urban cities, uh, in urban areas, with uh, that are black neighborhoods that are bad. There are bad neighborhoods, and many of these neighborhoods are dangerous. And there, there's a whole subculture, you know, because a lot of black people, thank heavens, have moved out of that subculture. But there's a subculture of places that where you don't want to be because. They're black. And why is that happening? We don't know why. There are different theories. Different people have different theories. So the left says it's history. It's the history of slavery. It's the history of racism. Uh, There are other people. uh, Charles Murray says there's a genetic element involved. I I myself don't really buy into either of those theories. I believe that it's policy uh, because blacks were rising until the uh, Great Society, the Lyndon Johnson Great Society programs, which I believe unintentionally destroyed the black family, which made everybody more prone to crime, uh, and also um, uh, taught people to be dependent on government largesse unless they were smart and disciplined and driven. Then they got out and they left behind the people who were um, hurt by those by those programs. But again, that's my theory. I, you know, I I would argue it, I would debate it, but I can't say that it's the truth. I can't say that this is why there is. But the thing about the police is the police don't deal in theories. They deal with the people, the situation as it is. If if this was invented by policies, and if those policies are putting money and power uh, in the hands of politicians, there's every reason for the politicians to make a fuss about the police uh, because the police are just dealing with the results. The police are the last guys on the totem pole. And again, this is not letting these guys off the hook if they did wrong. As I said, if 1% of cops are, are bad news, uh, that's 7,500 cops in the country. So bad things are going to happen by them, by these things. But what I am saying is the explanations for these things are various and complex, and the reasons for them probably various and complex. And the idea that race is a construct uh, and but yet white is a bad race, and anyone who does something bad or disagrees with the idea that this is a construct is therefore white, and that's bad. It's just a nonsense. It's just nonsense. And the whole thing about nonsense and the whole thing about lies, and especially because power, the power of people who put forward these theories uh, depends upon you accepting these, is they cannot be argued with. You cannot argue. So you have to silence people, and you have to shout them down, and you have to say terrible things. You know, when I was talking about Men- Memphis— those people, all of whom were black and who were uh, threatening looking, if one of them moved in next to me, I would sell my house and move away. Why? Because of the color of skin? 
Obviously not. I live in a neighborhood where there are plenty of people uh, of color. That That's not the thing. It's because of the behavior, right? It's because of the way that people, uh, that guy acts and uh, probably the things he does. I mean, I could tell these were not good people. Uh, so, you know, and then they call it white flight. But is it, are you fleeing because you're white and they're black? Are you fleeing because of actions and principles? These are things that should be discussed in this country, but they are not being discussed because too many people have a stake in making sure this is purely a racial issue with one explanation, which doesn't make sense. You know, there was a fascinating headline in the Washington Post that said newsrooms that move beyond objectivity can build trust. And I thought that's kind of an interesting idea because con men can build trust. Child molesters build trust. It doesn't mean you're doing the job of what a newsroom does. This is by uh, Leonard Downey Jr., former executive editor of the Washington Post, now a professor. He says, increasingly, reporters, editors, and media critics argue that the concept of journalistic objectivity is a distortion of reality. They point out that the standard was dictated over decades by male editors in predominantly white newsrooms and reinforced their own view of the world. They believe that pursuing objectivity can lead to false balance or misleading both sidism, what we used to call uh, civilized engagement, both sidism and covering stories about race, the treatment of women, LGBTQ rights, income inequality, climate change, and many other subjects. In today's diversifying newsrooms, they feel it negates many of their own identities, life experiences, and cultural context, keeping them from pursuing the truth in the work. Let me translate that into English. We have an idea of the world. It makes no sense, so we don't want anybody to argue with it or challenge it. And by declaring it morally true, we can overcome such white ideas as fairness and objectivity and, and listening to both sides. So this story is about white supremacy and race. That's what we are told. And if you don't believe that, you're a bad person. You're silenced. You're excluded. Uh, you are not interviewed by the Washington Post because they don't believe in objectivity. But what's the up upshot? What is actually happening? Well, Heather McDonald, who will be with us uh, in a few minutes, uh, has written about what she calls the Ferguson effect. And this is what happens when there is this because of Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown was shot. When bad policemen are investigated, or possibly bad policemen are investigated, it has no effect on policing. But when these stories become big stories, and they only become big stories when they can make it a racial issue, when they become big stories and the police are broad, the investigation of the police is broadcast and goes viral, the police stand down. Well, what happens when that happens? Uh, Jason Riley writes about this this week in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he writes about a study of the Ferguson effect by Roland Fryer, a Harvard economist. And here's what Fryer found. When police are investigated for wrongdoing, that's fine. But when the investigation becomes part of a media circus, uh, they stand down, the police withdraw, they police less. And I, I would add, by the way, because fewer people want to be police a policeman, they have to lower their standards to fill their quota of hiring. So they withdraw, they police less. Uh, there's a marked increase in homicide and other violent, violent crimes. Um, how much is of an increase? Fryer says, our estimate suggests that investigating police departments after viral incidents of police violence is responsible for approximately 450 excess homicides per year. This is twice the loss of life in the line of duty of the U.S. military in a year, 12.6 times the annual loss of life due to school shootings, and this is the one that kills me, that three times the loss of life due to lynchings between 1882 and 1901, the worst 20 years for lynching in America. So these diverse newsrooms that don't want their identities to be disturbed by hearing both sides that have scuppered 
objectivity in favor of a theory that makes hash of logic and common sense, uh, they are responsible for more black deaths every year than in the 20 worst years of lynching. Famous great German writer Goethe uh, of the Romantic era, he said, all theory is gray, but forever green is the tree of life. So we have an intellectual class that has trained up the new intellectual class that has vanished up the fundament of its own imagination, that has replaced history and journalism and listening to both sides with bad theory and lies and silence. And they've become the, not just the enemies of the people, but they've become, they've caused the death of the poorest and the least among us. And they are making this situation worse. Let's talk to Heather McDonald. So I have to welcome a new sponsor. I am incredibly enthusiastic about this because I have been in a position where I needed antibiotics and I couldn't get them. And if the past couple of years has taught us anything, it's that in a crisis like a global pandemic or a natural disaster, even the basics can be hard to come by. There is nothing scarier. Let me tell you, there, truly, there's nothing scarier than needing this stuff and not being able to have it. You need to be prepared for anything. Jace Medical is here to help. Jace Medical's mission is to empower you to be better medically prepared, even in the worst case scenarios. A great way to start preparing is with the Jace case, a pack of five different courses of antibiotics that you can use to treat a whole host of bacterial illnesses, including UTIs, respiratory infections, sinusitis, skin infections, and more. All you have to do is fill out a simple online form and in some cases, jump on a quick call with one of their board certified physicians. From there, you can ask your physician treatment-related questions on an ongoing basis. And let me tell you something. I'm not joking about this. I have been on the phone with someone when I could not get the antibiotics I needed, and it can really ruin your whole day and a lot more than that. The Jace case gives you peace of mind knowing that your family will have what you need if the worst happens. Go to jacemedical.com, enter code CLAVEN at checkout for a discount on your order. That's jacemedical.com, promo code CLAVEN, and you will want to know how to spell CLAVEN. It's K. You know, every time I bring uh, Heather McDonald on this show, I say that she is one of the very top uh, reporters in the country. And then sometimes I think, am I am I being too uh, fulsome in my flattery? And then I go research again and have to go back and read her stuff. And she is one of the best reporters in the country, uh, if not the very best. She just is doing work that no one else is doing. Uh, she is absolutely terrific on uh, race, on cops. Uh, she has a new book coming out called When Race Trump's Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. Officially, it's available for pre-order on Monday, but it's actually, I'm looking at the Amazon page, it's available for pre-order now. Pre-order it because her stuff is absolutely great. Heather, it's great to see you. I love that plug. Thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, so let's talk about Tyree Nichols. Uh, you, I'm sure you watch these videos. What did you take away from this? I took away that Training in Memphis is absolutely abysmal for police officers and possibly recruitment standards are as well. Uh, this was a, a deplorable stain on the on the profession of policing. I don't believe it's representative at all, but I completely understand the public's dismay and the desire to understand whether this is in fact a candid window into mistreatment that's going on every day. 
I don't think it is. I think the left and President Biden is demagoguing it, but it is a fair question to ask after seeing something as as completely antithetical to the standards of police profession as as these videos have shown us. That's what it looked like. It did look absolutely terrifying. We've all been stopped for traffic violations, and it's just a frightening thing to think about. Did it? Why were five guys from this elite, uh, you know, the elite division, the Scorpion division, why were they doing a traffic stop, do you think? Oh, well, traffic stops are, are quite important in fighting violent crime. The National Traffic Safety Highway Administration has an entire program and has had one for decades on what it calls the uh, nexus between cash crashes and crime. Mm. It turns out that neighborhoods with the highest levels of violent crime also have the worst driving. I know a criminologist at uh, the University of Cincinnati who's done research in Over the Rhine, which is Cincinnati's inner city neighborhood. And he says that the driving behavior you, you see there just makes your ha- hair stand up on, on end. You know, people running red lights all the time, uh, speeding past school zones, completely indifferent to children on the street. So it's perfectly appropriate uh, to be looking for for reckless driving because also, Andrew, it is what residents of high crime neighborhoods want the police to do. There was a video that came out of North Minneapolis after the George Floyd riots completely destroyed law enforcement there of a high school principal after there'd just been a shooting of, of a student, one of her students, a fatal shooting. And what she was complaining about is the fact that people were speeding like crazy through the neighborhood. Now, the the Memphis Police Department is trying to discredit the officer's reports that Mr. Nichols was driving down the wrong way of a street. But frankly, uh, that behavior would not be at all out of the norm for a neighborhood in a city with the, the violent crime problem and the disorder problem that Memphis has. So let, let's talk about this. All the cops were black. Nichols is obviously black. Uh, and yet we're still told that this is a race problem. And from one perspective, I can sort of see why that might be true. The uh, the lovable, uh, always trustworthy Al Sharpton uh, came out and said they wouldn't have done this in the white side of town. But I've been to Memphis and the black side of town is really bad. It is really frightening uh, in some of those neighborhoods there. And, uh, you know, does does that affect the way police look at black people? Uh you know what? We'll have to be honest. Police every day see a reality that Americans completely turn their eyes away from. And that is an extraordinary psychological burden uh, because the rest of the country is going around pretending that there aren't vast behavioral disparities and that the only reason for the overrepresentation of blacks in prison or the underrepresentation of blacks as, as Google computer engineers must be racism. Whereas in fact, you have an inner city culture that is simply pathological. There is no other way to explain these 15 and 16 year olds that are almost joyfully spraying sidewalks with bullets indifferent to the fact that they're taking down toddlers in the process. So, you know, it would be very unrealistic psychologically to say that 
that police officers are not on their guard in high crime neighborhoods. I remember after one of the highly publicized police shootings in New York City of a uh, man, young man, Sean Bell, who was coming out of a strip joint and he, I think he was in his car, was a, a gang banger and there was a, a, some sort of traffic altercation and the police did shoot killing Mr. Bell, a, a representative of the, of the detectives union told me, we would be willing to stipulate that officers may be a little faster on the trigger when confronting black suspects if the left were willing to acknowledge that the reason for that is the vastly disproportionate rates of black crime. I mean, let me just throw one more statistic at you, Andrew, and then get back to our conversation. Blacks between the ages of 10 and 24 die of gun homicide at 25 times the rate of whites between the ages of 10 and 24. They're not being killed by the police. They're not being killed by whites. They're being killed by other blacks. Blacks commit gun homicide at about 25 times the rate of whites. And police officers, 42% of all cop killers on average are black males, even though black males are 6% of the population. A police officer is 400 times as likely to be killed by a black as an unarmed black is to be killed by a police, police officer. So those things matter. By and large, however, our usual test for racist policing, which is simply that arrest and stops are disproportionately black, is not a valid test of racism. That disproportion is the inevitable result of enforcing the law. Wow. See, now you've, you, you came up, I believe, with the phrase, the Ferguson effect, the police yeah. drawing back when this... Uh, you know, this publicized investigations take place and these charges are slung about. But one of the things I, I just heard yesterday was that police are now having a terrible time recruiting because nobody wants to be a cop because the cops are given no respect. Uh, and in fact, the opposite. Uh, so now you have, you said you looked at this video and you saw really poor training. Uh, police departments are forced to lower their standards because they're not getting the number of recruits they need. So you're in this kind of cycle of death, basically, brought on by the continual pounding of this racial uh, theory, which doesn't really hold up. It doesn't actually describe reality. And you, I know, yeah. I mean, just, just in the last minute, you know, you've given more facts, you've spoken more facts to, to this audience than they might be getting if they were watching uh, ABC, CBS, or NBC, and yet you are never invited onto those uh, networks. You are, uh, you know, well-respected, many awards and all that, but not by those people. Um, so how, how does this break through? Is there, do you despair? I mean, is there any chance of somehow changing this narrative? It's quite extraordinary. You know, the, the uh, chief of police in Washington, D.C., it just came out with a statement saying this unbelievably radical so-called criminal reform bill that is unwinding law enforcement even further in the name of fighting disparate impact. Uh, what about the criminal? What about the victims? And what's so amazing is that the race activists have thrown their lot in with black 
criminals rather than black victims, because it, it is the fact that blacks are way, way over victimized by violent street crime. 10,000 blacks were killed in 2020. That's 3,000 more than all whites and Hispanics combined, even though blacks are only 13% of the population. But the left would somehow rather privilege the criminal than the victim. I, I can't begin to explain it. And, you know, it, it wasn't turned around in the 2020 midterm elections. I do not think crime played a significant role there, despite the much closer race in New York City for the state governor, uh, because the, the Republican was focusing on crime, but elsewhere it didn't matter. And, and at this point, it kind of looks like the people who care the most about black victims of crime are white conservatives. Yeah. And when they, when, they, when they finally are told one too many times by the New York Times that to raise the alarm about crime is racist, and they say, okay, fine, you know, fine with us, we'll, we'll walk away, then nothing's going to happen. What will turn it around is if white kids start getting shot in drive-by shootings. Mm -hmm. Right now, yeah. it's almost exclusively black children, toddlers, three-year-olds, five-year-olds, gunned down in their beds and their front porches at birthday parties, jumping on trampolines in their parents' car. It's black children that are getting gunned down. Al Sharpton has nothing to say about it. Benjamin Crump has nothing to say about it. If this spills over into white communities, then you'll see change. It, you know, it, it, it's a kind of racism that when they talk about black, when Democrats, when liberals talk about uh, black people, they mean black criminals. They, it's almost as if they think that is representative of black life, which it actually is not. I mean, it is representative of a problem in black life. There's a, there's a theory that the federal government, what, one of the things that happens after these uh, well-publicized shootings is that the federal government sometimes tries to gain oversight over the local police. Uh, and usually that means a further hike in crime because the federal government uh, restrains the local law enforcement. Do you think that this is there's an underlying effort for the, by the federal government to take over local policing? No, I don't. I, that's a conspiracy theory. Okay. Uh, they they wouldn't possibly be able to do that. But I I just think that Democratic politicians and Joe Biden has been the most inflammatory both before and after the Tyree Nichols shooting. It's it's absolutely criminal what he's been saying. He's he's he's, he's pulled out his favorite trope about blacks you know, being in daily fear of their lives from the police, uh, they that's an ideological position for them. It's going to make blacks more resistant to the police, more likely to resist arrest, more violence directed at officers. And as you say, more officers backing off from, from sound constitutional colorblind proactive policing, more black lives will be taken. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's not going to matter to Biden because what he cares about is this narrative of pervasive white white supremacy. You know, I've only got a, about a minute left, uh, but your new book is called When Race Trump's Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence Destroys Beauty and Threatens Lives. Can you give us a little bit about what's what's in there? Well, it. it looks at disparate impact theory, it turns out we're turn, tearing down every meritocratic and behavioral standard, no matter how colorblind and fair, because they do have a disparate impact on blacks. And the only allowable explanation at present for that disparate impact is racism. So we've decided that 
you know, a medical school admissions test must be racist somehow if blacks are not admitted to medical schools in their proportional numbers at 13% or the medical school license exam, licensing exam must be racist if it does not qualify as many blacks to continue in their medical careers as whites and Asians. And so we're tearing those standards down. Uh, and I provide an alternative explanation, which is there are very, very large academic skills gaps and behavior gaps that explain the overrepresentation of blacks in prison and the underrepresentation of blacks in our most meritocratic institutions. 66% of black 12th graders do not even possess partial mastery of 12th grade math skills, which are very elementary. It's, it's basic arithmetic yeah. and knowing how to read a graph. Uh, 6% of blacks are fully college ready according to the ACT exam. So how do, we, how do we go from that, which we refuse to look at and expect that absent racism, all, all of Google's engineers, there'll be 13% Google engineers or 13% researchers in a, in a cancer or Alzheimer's lab. So I am making a call for a return to colorblind meritocratic standards and honesty about the real reason for racial disparities in our country, because at present, as long as racism is the only allowable explanation for racial disparities, it is all coming down. Every institution is going to be dragged down. Heather McDonald, the new book is called When Race Trumps Merit. When it comes out, come back. You can come back anytime. I always love I'd talking love to. to you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Andrew. I know with Valentine's Day coming, many of you are thinking, how can I find the right person? I wish there were some kind of technology that could easily find that person for me. Well, I can't help you with that right now, but if you're hiring, there is technology that can quickly help you find the right person for your job. Head to ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin, and you can try it for free. ZipRecruiter uses powerful technology to find the right candidates for your job. See a candidate you like, you can easily send them a personal invite so they're more likely to apply. Their user-friendly dashboard makes it easy to filter, review, and rate your candidates all from one place. Let ZipRecruiter help you find the best people for all your roles. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin to try ZipRecruiter for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire if, and only if, you are smart enough to know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. So, you know, we talk so much about the culture, and a lot of people think that just means the movies or something like that, but it doesn't. It means all the ways we think, all the ways we experience life, and the narrative, the narrative that drives the way we think about life. I've talked often about the fact that George Washington loved liberty, but couldn't really fully understand uh, that his slaves wanted liberty as much as he did, and that's because of the narrative that he was surrounded by has a big effect. These theories, these theories that have left uh, so many black people in entrenched poverty, uh, these theories that have left, I, I believe, increased the number of homicides uh, it, it, within the last few years in black neighborhoods. These bad theories emanate from someplace. They emanate from uh, academia. They're taught 
to people who then go into journalism and the journalists spread it. They're taught to people who go into HR departments and they spread it and they uh, silence people. They're taught to people who wind up in Silicon Valley and they silence you. Uh, right now on Google, if you uh, go on and you know search uh, somebody's name who doesn't agree with Black Lives Matter, they'll put a warning on there uh, because these people have been infected with bad theory. And that's why what Governor DeSantis is doing in Florida is so important. He is taking on the educational establishment. Uh, he wants to stop funding diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, which are the, all the opposite of all those words. And he wants to keep an eye on professors who underperform. Here he is uh, talking about his efforts as cup three. We are also going to eliminate all DEI and CRT bureaucracies in the state of Florida. No funding, and that will wither on the vine. And I think that that's very important because it really serves as an ideological filter, a political filter, You've seen different things. I mean, New College has really embraced that, and that's part of the reason I think it hasn't been successful and the enrollment's down so much, uh, because I think people want to see uh, true academics, and they want to get rid of some of the uh, political window dressing that seems to accompany all this. We're also going to propose, so yes, we have the five-year review of all the tenured faculty, which is, which is good, and you can have, and the Board of Trustees has to determine whether they stay or go, but you may need to do review more aggressively than just five. So we're going to give the boards of trustees and the presidents of the universities the power to call a post-tenure review at any time. So you heard him mention New College. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but of course, this idea of losing the place that is the font of all this bad theory that is giving them power and prestige, that gives the left power and prestige. The idea of losing that font of, of uh, power uh, drives the left nuts. And speaking of nuts, here's uh, Joy Ann Reed from MSNBC, and a professional lunatic. What DeSantis is doing is intentional. In order to peel off Trump's Republican voters and get them on his side ahead of his presidential bid in 2024, he's turning Florida into a right-wing paradise where the focus isn't on healthcare or jobs or taxes or infrastructure, or I don't know, hurricane or flood insurance in one of the most natural disaster prone states in the country, you know, normal governor stuff, but rather on the right wing culture wars and nothing but the right wing culture wars. And he's ticking all the boxes. Not only is he banning books about history and any mention of the existence of gay people from Florida schools, he's barring public high schools from teaching AP African-American studies. He's taking aim at drag performances, even suggesting that he would urge the state's child protective services to investigate parents who take their own kids to one. It's a right wing fantasy land like Disney World, but in hell. Come to Florida, the meanest place on earth. It's, it's funny because people are coming to Florida. They're flooding into Florida from places like New York and California. They would row there if there was water, but they, it's all ground. So they just have to walk because it's so desperate to get there. And I love the idea that it's a culture war. I love the fact that the left comes into schools, elementary schools, and brings in gay porn in cartoon form. And, and people say, please don't do that. And it's like, oh, now it's a culture war. If you didn't want to call, if the left didn't want a culture war, they shouldn't have opened fire because they have to expect that people are going to protect their kids and fire back. So, he, you know, Ron DeSantis was talking about the new uh, college, and this was a place that was founded in 1960. And what it was supposed to be was it was supposed to be based on the new college of Oxford was supposed to give a classical education to everyone. And I've frequently talked about this, that you start out so often, you start out saying, let's take uh, poor people 
to opera, you know, will uplift them. And you end up by saying, let's make opera rap, you know? <laughs> and so it always works the, the wrong way. So that's what happened. The idea was it was supposed to give a classical education to everyone, regardless if, if they qualified, if they qualified. And in 1960, at the founding, 60% of the people who went to New College were in the top 10% of their high school class. This is a state school. Now, over time, this is now, what, 60 years later? Now it's 21%. And there's low enrollment, uh, bad grades. And so DeSantis put in a new board of trustees, ousted the old president, put in a new one. And among the, and the new board of trustees is conservative, among them uh, Chris Rufo. Now, I, I, I'm a pals with Chris Rufo, but I'm also a tremendous fan of uh, Chris Rufo. He is a smart, decent, uh, pleasant, uh, intelligent guy who uh, does his, who is a genuine fighter for the good uh, and won't back down. And yet he always seems to do it with a civilized way. He had a meeting with the faculty of New College. And th- this is the way he presented himself. Now, remember, he's now on the board. So this is, this is the top of the organizational chart. These are the people who are running, a, it's a state place. These are the people appointed by the state. And here he is talking to the faculty. He's cut one. Look, I'm going to level with you. Uh, We're all here for a serious problem. Uh, I'm going to outline what I think is the problem, and I'm going to outline some of the principles and ideas that we hope to bring to the table as new trustees. Uh, There's going to be, of course, disagreement. I welcome that. I'd like civil debate and disagreement. Uh, You know, we're political appointees. We represent uh, the the expression of the democratic process, and that involves debate. Um, We don't believe that we're always right. And the, the points that I'll be raising today are contingent on changing my mind. They're provisional. And so I'd like to hear from you. All right, so that's the way he approaches it. I want to hear from you. He's both sidesism, as they say in the Washington Post. Uh, this is what happened behind the scenes when the president and provost, I think her name is, uh, is Suzanne Sherman, uh, came up. There had been a death threat against uh, one of the people standing there, one of the, one of the people appointed by uh, Governor DeSantis. So she wanted to cancel the meeting. And this is her confrontation with Chris. Anybody who enters this event at this point is at risk. There are credible threats out there Why, that who, have who not been investigated sufficiently by the... That's not what they told me. It'll never be sufficiently investigated. We got to move forward. It was an email no. that had some vague we, threats. They weren't direct threats. They weren't actionable threats. And... Um, and there are threats against me. Yeah, there are threats against Eddie personally. I understand that, and I understand that that's a no. Thing we don't you need. We, take. we don't need your protection. Yeah. We need their protection, and we're thankful yeah. for it. You're, you're, you're free if you feel like you're you're you don't want to take the risk. You're free to go home. You're free to to, to go where you want. We are closing this building, sir. No, we're not. We just yes, took a board. We, we just took took a vote of the board. The board votes two to one as a majority. This Look at the organizational not, chart. This is not the full board. So I love the look at the organizational chart. That is my favorite part because obviously he outranks her on the organizational chart. But just notice his his approach, Chris Rufo's approach is uh, let's talk. I'm open minded. I will change my mind. Hers is let's shut the line. No talking, no talking, no conversation. Why do you think? Why do you think? Because they cannot defend their position. 
Rufo is great. He has published at City Journal a manifesto. He wrote it with Ilya Shapiro and Matt Bellenberg of what needs to be done, abolish DEI bureaucracies and mandatory diversity training, curtail political coercion, end uh, identity-based preferences. And he wrote this on Twitter. He said, for decades, conservatives have ceded the universities to the most intolerant and ideological factions of the left. We've been paralyzed by the fear of spacious accusations of censorship no more. We must restore public authority over public institutions. We must govern. This is what the right has to learn. It has to learn you're going to be called racist. It has to learn you're going to be told you have to shut down. You're endangering people. Words of violence. Uh, you're killing people. You're killing transgender people simply by doubting uh, that they are what they think they are. Uh, every, All of those things we're going to have to stand up against because they're defending the indefensible. When you are defending the defensible, you defend it, right? Because then you say, come and talk to me. I'm open-minded. Let me hear your argument. But when you're defending the indefensible, there is nowhere to go but silence. Silence and lies, silence and lies. You know, this is this is an amazing moment because because of technology, young people have been given a lot of power because they learn technology faster than older people. But older people remain wiser than younger people. Now we have what we have is an, a, a class of older people who are afraid of the young, afraid of losing their services, afraid of losing their uh, approval, afraid of uh, being demonized by them, afraid of being called irrelevant. And so they have stepped down and let bad, bad information flow out of these uh, lie factories, our academies, and flow into our society. And now we're battling it on every level. On every level, they come in and pollute our children with their stupid sexual ideas, and they are destroying our black citizens, some of our black citizens, with this uh, race theory. Uh, it, none of it, none of it is real. However, however, I'd be willing to hear it argued. I'm just not willing to be silenced. I'm not willing to be shut down. I'm not willing to have my sponsors stripped away. I'm not willing to be kicked off, uh, you know, the, the social media that has become the town square. That's what we're fighting. We're not fighting their theories. We're fighting the right to fight their theories because they have pushed us so far back against the wall that we have to get back, and the only way back is to get back the culture. Now, all of this comes back to the, our, our form of governance, and it comes back to our government. And there was a Gallup uh, poll released, uh, its annual poll of the most important U.S. problem. What do you think it was? <laughs> problem number one is the government. It's up six points. 21% of the people polled So our number one problem is the government. Now, that's a problem when government is supposed to get its legitimacy from the consent of the government, of the governed, remember? Uh, that's the declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So that was actually a new thought, a new way of forming a government, but it wasn't a new idea. That I, the idea of the consent of the governed, uh, like almost everything in our culture, it comes originally from the Catholic Church. Uh, Dun Scotus is the, supposed to be the first person. Uh, the, Scottish, um, the Scottish theologian was supposed to be the first person uh, to use the term. Uh, he is Dun's uh, Scotus. The, the humanists hated him. Uh, and so he's the guy where we get the word dunce. They would say you're like a dunce, like dunce-scotus. Uh, but you can't have the consent of the government governed if the government is not answerable to the voters. And you can't have the consent of the governed if the appointed uh, people are not responsible to the elected people. So here's this story that just came out. 
Jim Jordan of the House Judiciary Committee, he's now the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, he asked the DOJ, the Department of Justice, to send him their documents on the Joe Biden classified document investigation. He wanted to know more about what the FBI was doing and what the Department of Justice was doing in investigating Biden's classified documents that they found at his home and a million other places. I think there's some here. Uh, you know, I, I think I may have seen some in the outline out in the hall. Uh, and the DOJ refused. They refused to send the elected government information about their doings, their unelected, the, uh, the unelected agency's doings. Uh, you, it's like you're just the representatives of the people. We don't, we're not answerable to you. At the same time that happened, lawyers for Hunter Biden sent letters requesting investigations into allies of former President Trump, who they say trafficked in stolen information from, get this, his laptop. So now Hunter Biden has finally admitted, he's been dithering about this, he's finally admitted that it's his laptop, which means the press lies. It means the former CIA guys who said it's Russian disinformation lied. All the people on MSNBC lied. Joe Biden lied. Joe Biden, remember in that uh, debate with um, with uh, Donald Trump, said, oh, this is all garbage. We said they, the CIA people said it was Russian disinformation. Maybe he was deceived. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to believe that, we have a special commercial later on where I sell you a bridge in Brooklyn. Uh, but maybe he was deceived. But no, they, they were all lying. And now we know Hunter Biden has admitted that this is his laptop. But what does that mean? We've learned a lot from this laptop, a lot of it coming out of um, of the New York Post, who got, came up with the story first. Uh, we learned that, uh, for instance, uh, Hunter Biden was paying uh, his assistance for sex uh, which is absurd. I mean, it's your assistant. She should give you sex for free. That's how we used to do it in Hollywood. Um, I'm joking, obviously, but but here there's more. A Hunter Biden email, this is from the Post, sent to an American aluminum, aluminum company and promising information on Russian oligarchs is raising fresh concerns. Documents dating back to 2011 on the notorious laptop from hell showed Hunter offered to sell intelligence on Russian oligarchs to the U.S. aluminum firm Alcoa Inc. for $55,000. So he's, ta he's talking about um, selling information. Where would he get this information? How does he have this information? Now, let's remember that Hunter Biden was living in the house in Delaware where some of these classified documents uh, were found. And here is uh, Senator Cruz on Fox, uh, Ted Cruz, kind of explaining this all. The Alcoa email, he was asking Alcoa, pay me $55,000. Now, I want you to think, when was the last time you demanded of someone, give me 55 grand for what? for my insight on Russian oligarchs and their networks of elites in Russia. And he's pitching this to them. Now, listen, Hunter Biden doesn't know anything about this. He doesn't have any history or background in this, which means at a minimum, he made a business out of selling access to daddy, making millions of do dollars to daddy. But the inference from both of these emails the obvious inference is that he's reading materials assembled for his father when he's the sitting vice president. And both of these materials, look, the intelligence agencies do assessments of Russian oligarchs, of the networks of elites. What he's offering to sell is exactly the type of material that is contained in classified briefings. <laughs> All right. Now, now, 
let, let's be fair, Senator Ted Cruz, great guy, but he's on the other side, right? He's a Republican, so he has an interest in, in portraying this in the worst possible way. But how can we know whether he's right or wrong? Let's just, just rehearse this for a minute. Remember I said a couple of shows back that the Twitter story, Elon Musk releasing all the Twitter files, was one of the biggest stories actually of my lifetime because it had to do with what is actually going on here, which is the information crisis that we're in, which is allowing all these bad ideas to flood into our society. At the same time, it's allowing the people who promulgate these ideas and who uh, derive power and prestige and money from these ideas to silence the rest of us. So you have Hunter Biden's laptop. Let's just go through it. Hunter Biden's laptop is found. It's exposed by the New York Post. They start going through this information. Miranda Devine over there is going through it. They get shut down. Oldest paper in the country. They get shut down on Twitter, they get thrown off Twitter. They get suppressed on Facebook, the places where we all go to get our information. Uh, they're On YouTube, people are banned, right? Even now, the people are just being told that if you don't say that climate change is real, if you don't say the vaccines are good, if you don't say uh, that the establishment, what the government is saying is correct, you are thrown off these places. So the, the Biden laptop is is basically suppressed, and we're on the, in the middle of an election, right? So we need to know these things. This is actually information that an honest press, that an honest establishment would make sure got to the people. But they have lost that plot. They have lost that thread that the people are in charge. The people are the people who are supposed to be running the government. They have lost that idea because they have been taught in these academies not to have it. It's all one thing. This culture is all linked together. It's all, you know, one institution feeding another institution. CIA guys, ex-CIA guys, but high up the ladder, these are top people in the CIA, former intelligence people, come out and say, oh yeah, this, this is obviously Russian disinformation. Not only that, they went to Twitter beforehand and said, there's some Russian disinformation about Hunter Biden coming down the pike. Keep an eye out for it. So that they were already predisposed, not just predisposed by their leftism at Twitter, but predisposed by the information, the misinformation they were getting from the intelligence uh, people to, to censor this. So now they censor this information so there's no October surprise. It's a grand old political tradition, the October surprise. This was it. They censored it. They censored it so you couldn't get it. They went on and on lying about it. Joe Biden lied about it during the debate, said it was garbage. And now, finally, and, and by the way, the New York Times, this was a, in Breitbart brought this out. The New York Times knew it was real and suppressed the knowledge. They kept it off because you don't want any of this both sidism where you have falsehood and the truth. You just want the falsehood. You just want the falsehood because you can't defend it if you let the truth in. So the New York Times, a former newspaper, lied every day. They knew, had that information and didn't give it to you. They were lying. And now Hunter Biden, because he's out of control, because he's an idiot, accidentally confirmed that this thing is real. But we knew it was real already. I mean, we knew it was real. So now it's all of it is taken away. And now the Congress says, well, wait a minute. If Joe Biden had classified documents, if Hunter Biden was living in the house where those classified documents resided, if he was offering for $55,000 to share information with Alcoa that he had no way of knowing except through classified documents, Shouldn't we know about this? And the DOJ says, no, 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 no. This is, we've got this. We've got this. It's not like we're politicized. It's not like we were appointed by the executive branch and are answerable to you peons over there who are just elected by your local, you know, uh, voters. No. This is, so the entire system of government has is foundering 
on our inability to get the information we need. Our trust is low because we know we're being lied to. Uh, Conspiracy theories are high because people put together conspiracy theories when they don't have the information they need. And all of it is in this chain of information. And all of it, it begins also with people not being taught what this government is supposed to be. It's supposed to be about you. It is supposed to be about the individual. You are supposed to be sovereign. You are supposed to give your consent. It's not enough that you vote every four years. You have to have the information with which to vote. And they are keeping that information from you because they cannot defend their theories. All right, listen up. We've been running a massive 40% off sale for annual membership. It ends tonight, so panic. Don't miss the chance to celebrate one of the greatest moments in Daily Wire history with one of the greatest offers. That's 40% off annual memberships with code do not comply. The deal ends tonight, so don't wait. One year ago, we sued the government over the tyrannical vaccine mandate, and we won. Celebrate this victory with us by joining the winning team. When you join, you get access to the best content and one of the fastest growing libraries. We're adding a ton of new content this year with kids, more movies, and shows, hard-hitting documentaries, and more. Remember, this is your last chance to get 40% off your new annual membership at dailywire.com slash subscribe with code do not comply. Sale ends tonight, so head to dailywire.com slash subscribe right now. Lock in your discount to enjoy all our great releases coming soon. So in the cultural section today, I want to talk about a remarkable book that I've just read, and it feeds into what I was saying about the corruption of the DOJ and the FBI. But more than that, it feeds into our ignorance, our learned ignorance. One of the problems we have with so many of the young people coming up is they're trained to be ignorant because they don't want to lose uh, the people teaching them their theories, don't want the theories challenged, so they're trained not to be able to think. The book is uh, called G-Man, Uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. It's by Beverly Gage. Uh, And what is so amazing about the book uh, is that Beverly Gage is a Yale historian. And I I really believe that uh, she's liberal. She gives a leftist, let's say. Uh, She gives a lot of hints that that is where she's coming from. And yet she's also an honest historian. And that means that it changes uh, the way that Hoover is looked at. And Hoover was central to the entire history of the second half of the 20th century and what was happening at that time. Now, Hoover has always been, J. Edgar Hoover has always been a monster to the right, especially after he died and some of his activities, the activities of the FBI were revealed. Uh, Here, just as an example, is a 20. 22 LA Times op-ed by Nicholas Goldberg, the former opinion editor of the Times. Uh, And he says, Hoover was no American hero. He was a bigot, a racist, and a homophobe, a conspiracy theorist who amassed and abused enormous power, pursued his enemies unscrupulously, and trampled on the civil liberties of law-abiding American citizens. Uh, So that's the typical right-wing uh, idea of J. Edgar Hoover. It has been for a long time, but has really become kind of the, the central idea of him. Uh, Clint Eastwood made a movie about him, kind of depicted him uh, that way. So it's not just on the left anymore. Um, now, you, you probably know something about J. Edgar Hoover. He was the head of the FBI during the day of the Depression gangsters, John Dillinger and Pretty Boy Floyd. Maybe you saw the uh, uh, good film with Johnny Depp, uh, The Public Enemies. Uh, you might remember Hoover was a, a Nazi fighter during the war at, at home, a domestic Nazi fighter, getting spies and uh, bombers uh, off the street. He was um, 
also a big communist hunter, uh, which didn't endear him to the left. Uh, During the 50s, he uh, worked uh, with the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee, which uh, became famous because of the Hollywood blacklist. uh, And he helped uh, to bring down um, the State Department spy, Albert Hiss, along with Richard Nixon, helped to bring him down. The nuclear spies, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, you've probably heard that uh, the FBI bugged the hotel rooms and homes eventually of of Martin Luther King Jr. uh, and that he uh, used secret power to blackmail uh, politicians to get them to do his own good because they all knew he knew whatever it was they were doing and who they were sleeping with and so on. Uh, You may also have heard that J. Edgar Hoover was a transvestite. That, according to Professor Gage, uh, is not true, uh, or she believes it not to be true. It's one comment made by somebody with a a grudge. Uh, The the story, when you hear it in the book, is not believable. It's very uh, cartoony. Uh, But he was almost certainly uh, gay, um, he had he carried on a lifelong relationship, uh, almost a marriage, uh, with his second in command, Clyde Tolson. We don't know if there was sex sex involved, uh, but he, they were you know partners uh, for most of his life. Now, the FBI. What's so interesting to me and so important to me and relevant to me about this book is it shows the FBI growing in tandem with the vast expansion of the deep state. Remember for. Most up, up through the 19th century, up until Woodrow Wilson, the Constitution serves to restrain the power of the government. It serves to keep the government from the federal government from reaching into areas that it's not supposed to go in, right? And that was the whole point of the Constitution was not to have a small government. We sometimes, uh, Republicans and conservatives sometimes talk about small government, but the government was supposed to have full powers in its sphere, but its sphere was supposed to be strictly limited. And now, of course, uh, we have a government that reaches into every sphere, the sphere of marriage, the sphere of your personal life, the sphere of, uh, you know, uh, even crime, which is mostly supposed to be a state uh, operation. They pass laws uh, that are 3,000 pages long, so you have no idea uh, what, you know, what what is being, what you're being governed by, and then the laws are interpreted by Uh, agencies that you didn't elect, who then, if you violate the law and you say, well, you're violating unfairly, you don't get a trial, you go before the agency that interpreted the law in the first place. So you now have this incredible, vast, deep state. And as this deep state was coming up, it began with Woodrow Wilson, who was, by the way, the Barack Obama of his day. He was a college professor, a college president. So uh, the press and the left loved him, even though he was an absolutely flaming racist uh, and, a bad, and, in my opinion, a bad president. Uh, he thought the Constitution was out of date. He thought in this complex life we need experts and the president should not be restrained by anything but his own vision of what his wonderful power should be. And J. Edgar Hoover, uh, was a very conservative man in both good and bad ways. Uh, he was a con- good man in that he understood uh, the danger of violent crime and the de- danger of the death of religion, the danger of communism. Uh, he believed in the Constitution. He believed in le- le- limited government. But he was also a conservative man in not good ways in that he didn't recognize the moral de- uh, necessity of desegregation and civil rights. He was an old-fashioned Southerner uh, who believed in, in literal white supremacy. Um, but his first and foremost care, according to this book, which is brilliantly researched, it really is a wonderful book, uh, and it's, it's a big doorstop of a book, but very readable. Um, 
his first and foremost care was the FBI. He wanted the FBI to be protected and he wanted it to be his fiefdom. And so as the deep state grew, the FBI's power grew with it. And even though Hoover was repeatedly reluctant to expand the power and the scope of the FBI, the federal government was always insisting upon it to him. And he rode that wave of growing power until he became an integral part of this huge, deep state. So what you have is a guy, think about this for a minute, you have a guy who was beloved of William F. Buckley and the National View, the conservatives. They loved him for his conservative views and his conservative rhetoric, but at the same time, he was a tool of the Democrat presidents who had no qualms about the uh, ever-increasing expansion of the deep state. So it was not a one-man show where Hoover was doing things. It was a dance between the Democrats who were engineering this vast expansion of government and this man who had uh, who they were using as their tool uh, to do what they wanted him to do. So it was a kind of dance between these two in which the deep state grew and grew and grew, and Hoover's power also grew and grew and grew. Now, all of the things that Hoover is most hated for, almost all of them, originate with Democrat presidents, indifferent to constitutional restraints and eager to expand the power of the state, sometimes for legitimate reasons. For instance, during lynching days, uh, Hoover just kept saying, it's, it's a murder. Murder is a state crime. I cannot go in and do this. But then the lynch, lynchers would get off uh, because the state was a southern state and they didn't really care about lynching, uh, so they wouldn't do anything. And so, uh, you know, Hoover wouldn't move, and that ultimately forced, it forced a larger state. But there were other times as well. So, for instance, World War II, the famous internment of Japanese-American citizens under suspicion of being traitors because they were Japanese. This was Franklin Roosevelt's policy. Now, Franklin Roosevelt, right, the, the patron saint of the left, and he basically said, his administration said to Hoover, we're going to intern all the Japanese. And Hoover was already interning uh, foreign nationals who he thought were suspicious, who he had reason to believe were suspicious. But when they wanted to intern all of the Japanese American, here's from the book. Hoover spoke out against thinking of the war in racial terms. Hoover said, no man should be suspected simply because he is foreign born or has a foreign name or accent. This is the villain of the right. They hate him. He wrote this in the summer of 1941. He said, Americans, unlike other nationals, are not a race. Americanism is an idea. He also had a legal argument, says Professor Gage, while non-citizens could be detained, the federal government had no constitutional right to detain U.S. citizens without due process, even in a time of war. Roosevelt listened to his generals who were telling him that the Japs, as they called them, they said a Jap is a Jap. That was one of his generals said. He said the Japs are an enemy race. The Japanese were an enemy race. And he sent out the army to round up 120,000 American citizens who were Japanese and interned them in camps. Roosevelt has never been held to account for this, but, but Hoover often is. Bugging Martin Luther King Jr. This is one of the things. And by the way, I'm not trying to... Uh, you know, whitewash what Hoover was doing. Hoover was essentially acceding to this as he protected the FBI and he was becoming powerful at the hands of these Democrats. I'm just simply saying this was a dance. This was something the Democrats were doing that Hoover was saying, I can ride this. He was an expert manipulator. He thought, I can ride this to more power. 
Hoover didn't like King. Uh, he didn't want there to be desegregation. Uh, he felt probably rightly that he, uh, Soviet-linked communists uh, had worked their way close to King. He had reason, good reason to believe that. But it was Bobby Kennedy who, in the words of this book, Professor Gage's uh, biography, G-Man, uh, proposed something that even Hoover had not fully entertained, wiretaps, not merely on the communists around King, but on King himself. So as King's power and influence grew, Martin Luther King Jr.'s power and influence grew, both Bobby Kennedy and Hoover approved of these wiretaps, and these were uh, supposedly revealed uh, King's extensive sexual affairs with other evangelical black leaders, including a rape, which King allegedly watched and encouraged. But after King was shot, Bobby Kennedy made a famous speech calling for calm and sharing the grief of black citizens. And he is now remembered as a hero of the civil rights movement, where Hoover a, a legit bigot, he's a legit bigot, but he is now, takes all the blame for these bugs that were originally Bobby Kennedy's idea. LBJ, another uh, leftist president who built the Great Society, a thing that I wish would be torn down uh, branch, you know, root and branch. Uh, he was the one who pushed Hoover into spying on and bugging LBJ's opponents at the Democratic National uh, Convention. So he wanted Bobby Kennedy bugged. Uh, he wanted the blacks who were coming in to replace the Dicks, trying to replace the Dixiecrats. He wanted them watched by the FBI. Uh, Hoover said, this is way out of line, but LBJ was the boss, and eventually Hoover knew where his bread was buttered, and he went ahead and did it. Did LBJ know about all the things, all these evil things that right-wing Hoover was doing. Here's what Professor Gage uh, said with Mitch Jesserick. We have invited her on the show. She hasn't responded to us, but here's what she said on Mitch Jesserick's uh, show. I think Johnson knew in a, in a general way what the FBI was doing. So he certainly knew that the wiretaps and to some degree the bugs were in place because those were sort of open secrets in Washington. The FBI was peddling a lot of information about King's sex life to reporters, to political figures. Um, Johnson really liked that kind of political gossip. Um, and it doesn't take a whole lot of um, deducing to figure out how they learn these things, right? So he knew about the very widespread surveillance. So again, this is something that was going on in tandem. Uh, Hoover uh, was a great communist hunter, and this is one of the things I disagreed with the, the book, Beverly Gage being, I think, a leftist, uh, continuous as well, it was a red scare. And she keeps uh, talking about it with some kind of skepticism. But in fact, there were spies in the State Department. A lot of conservatives like Joe, Joe McCarthy, because they think he had to do with cleaning those spies out. He really didn't. He was really a loose cannon. Uh, Hoover didn't like him because he thought he was giving communist hunting a bad name. But it was, and, and then a lot of people on the left say, well, it was Truman who exposed the spies. Truman was reluctant to do it. He didn't want to do it. Hoover did it. Hoover got the spies out of uh, the government. And, uh, it, you know, she kind of denigrates the work that he did there. But I think it was really good. He, he was working with the army who had these um, cables from the Soviet Union called, they were called the Venona uh, cables because they interpreted the codes of the Soviet Union. So they had information, but he didn't want to give those codes uh Hoover didn't want to give those codes away. And at one point, Gage sort of says that the left loved, the, they loved the Rosenbergs. They thought the Rosenbergs were pure martyrs to the cause. These are the people who sold uh, 
nuclear secrets to the Soviets. And they all the leftists, they were leftists who died recently. who were still saying Alger Hiss was not a spy in the State Department. This is the case in which the book, great book Witness is based. Uh, and Hoover didn't re- release the fact that he knew they were guilty because of the Venona cables because he didn't want the Soviet Union to know he was intercepting. He and the army were intercepting their cables. And Beverly Gates sort of says, well, if he'd only told about the Venona cables, then the left wouldn't have been wrong about any- everything. But, you know, that doesn't, doesn't really play out all that well. Uh, there's one hilarious thing. Hoover, when I was a little boy, was a kind of a, a hero to, to me and my brothers. Uh, we were, we were uh, ironic about it, but we still thought he was pretty cool going out there capturing uh, gangsters. We would go to the FBI building in Washington, which had a big iron fist of communism, a gigantic iron fist with chains linking the eastern um the East European countries together, and we really admired him. And of course, we admired Melvin Purvis, who ha- helped uh, track down Dillinger. Uh, but Hoover was gay, obviously, and he would send these little love notes to Melvin Purvis. And I was reading them. I couldn't help but think back. These little flirty love notes to Melvin Purvis was very handsome. And I couldn't help but think back on the fact that, that uh, we just admired him as the essence of manhood. But the thing about this is, is it does reveal, too, I mean, Nixon was a good friend of Hoover, treated uh, Tolson as if his lover, Tolson, as if he were his wife. Uh, you know, all everybody did, everybody knew about it. Uh, and it's just... It just reminds you that a lot of the shock and horror on the right, as well as about gay people, is a little bit hypocritical because they always knew this was going on at very, very high levels. So here's my point about this, is that, you know, when the founders of this country were discussing how to build America, they weren't always discussing issues. They were mostly discussing how do you take the beast of power and tear it into pieces so it's not so strong? How do you suppress that beast of power hunger in the human heart? And, and that was all that, the, uh, that America was about, all of that our Constitution was about, is how do we put the powers against each other? And that lasted for a long time until basically the, turn, the coming of the 20th century when that lust for power just broke through that cage and the beast ran loose. And Hoover took advantage of that, but it was the Democrats who were riding that beast the whole time. And it just gives a different image of what's going on then and what's going on now. That so many of the issues that we talk about, climate change, race, uh, you know, the the national debt, all uh, taxes, everything, it's really just about power. That's what this country is about. It's about can you restrain power from the people who want it and keep it in the hands of the individual so each of us can make his own decisions. Right now, the answer seems to be no. The experiment seems to be failing, but the game's not over yet. That, though, is the secret history behind the corrupt deep state and the vast expansion of government that went on in the 20th century with J. Edgar Hoover at the center of it, but not the cause. All right, the Clavenless Week is looming over you like a tremendous devouring uh, beast. If you're not a subscriber, if you are a subscriber, we will have more after this. But first, just to show you how generous we are, even if you're not a subscriber, we will now solve all your problems with the mailbag. Only girls can be the mommies. (laughs) Only boys can be the daddies. (laughs) That was Mr. Rogers, uh, and he should know. 
Uh, all right, from Anonymous, I come to you because I think you give good advice. I won't call you hot Gandalf, but I do listen intently to the wisdom of your program. You've become something of an odd father figure for me. I am a supervisor of a group of detectives. I'm happily married, although my wife drives me insane at times, and without our children, I'm not sure we would be married anymore. Divorce is not on the table. I've never strayed from my wife, nor will I. Uh, one of the detectives I supervise is an impressive woman who's drawn my attention, to say the least. She's not you wouldn't consider her traditionally attractive. This is not a lustful impulse, but over time, I've seen her intelligence, humor, virtue, work ethic, you name it, and I've fallen in love with her. She's also happily married. I'll never breathe a word of my feelings to anyone. I could go on for days, uh, but being with her at work is difficult. I will never act on these feelings. My question is, how do I set my mind and heart in a direction away from her? Um, please give me any help you can. Well, first of all, this is a tremendously painful situation to be in. Uh, and I, I understand completely what you mean when you say she's not um, traditionally attractive and you weren't lusting after her, and therefore you saw her as a human being and you fell in love with her as a human being. And women are tricky that way. Uh, they, um, they turn out to be human beings just, just when you don't want them to do that. Um, but but, you know, so you're in a painful situation. You have fallen in love with another woman, and I commend you on your integrity, uh, sticking with your marriage, especially uh, with your kids. So here's, here's what advice I can give you. Uh, if you can transfer out of, away from her, I, I would. And now I know that a lot of police departments, I mean, if you're in the NYPD, maybe there's a, a dozen places you could go, but a lot of police departments have nowhere to go, so it may not be possible, in which case it's going to be painful. Uh, it's going to continue to be painful because the more you see her, uh, the more you will uh, reopen those wounds. It will pass in time. If you keep to yourself, if you keep your hands to yourself, if you keep the information to yourself, it will pass. But it's going to be painful. It's going to take a long time. In the meantime, here is what I think you should do. Turn your erotic attention and your erotic energies toward your marriage. Your wife drives you insane. Communications between you seem to have broken down. That doesn't mean they can't be reestablished. That does not mean that you cannot start to bring uh, some romance back into your relationship with her. And it doesn't mean that you can't reopen the communications in your marriage and, and talk about the things that maybe are driving you insane. Uh, so, you know, don't don't give up on your marriage. That That's where you turn your energies and do it with a con great conscience. I know police are have tremendously difficult time staying married because of the uh, absolutely all-consuming nature of their jobs, uh, but do it. Uh, and, you know, you, if you need marriage therapy, have marriage therapy. If you think the divide between you is too uh, difficult to uh, recover, get some marriage therapy. But turn your erotic attentions toward your wife. And I mean that not just in bed, but I mean that in all the, um, you know, attention and conversation and being together and having time to be together and having time away from the children and having time uh, to go on dates and to recover what it is you saw in her when you married her. That will be the biggest help that you can get. If you can get away from this lady, uh, you know, you should. If you can't, which is v very possible, um, then... I think you should uh, just make sure to turn your erotic energies toward your wife. Um, 
from Andre. Dear Andrew, I really need your clarification on the subject. Jordan Peterson says women represent chaos or feminine energy has more chaos or associated with chaos and men represent order. I don't think he means this as a value judgment, but as a tool for understanding. You have said, though, you have said, though, me, I have said that men are chaotic and women have a civilizing aspect on men and society in general. Are you saying different things? Can you clarify your position? My gut and personal experience makes me tend to think you are right, but uh, Jordan has a point that men tend to value order to the point of tyranny and women are more agreeable, uh, JP term. Um, what are you trying to say, think, and what do you think JP is trying to say? And are you fundamentally at odds with your worldview on male, female, order, chaos? Thank you. Uh, well, yeah, you know, listen, Jordan is a tremendously intelligent guy and I really, and I really like him. He's a very gracious uh, gentleman, um, but we have very different worldviews. Uh, he is essentially a Jungian. Uh, what he's talking about when he talks about this is not, you know, a woman, namely Jane, represents chaos. He's saying that people have um, archetypes. The collective unconscious of all humankind has archetypes in it. This is Jungian theory. Uh, and in those archetypes, the female uh, represents chaos. I'm not a Jungian. I don't believe that. Um, I, I do believe that there are archetypes, but I don't believe that they are as consistently representative uh, as that at all. Um, I've read one of the, I've read uh, Jung, a lot of Jung, and but I've also read Joseph Campbell, who was one of the famous Jungians of my day, who talks about the, the hero's journey and things I'm sure you've heard. I don't really uh, subscribe to that those theories. I, I do believe there's some truth in them. I'm not saying they're completely false, I believe, but it's not the way I look at the world. I look at the world in a much more individualistic basis. Uh, I think that theory, uh, that people, that figures and characters can represent different things. I think there is a female archetype in the collective unconscious of the human mind, uh, but I think it is a maternal or and romantic uh, archetype. It has different faces. I think it can represent different things at different times and in different stories. I think you can write a story in which the female represents chaos, but you can also write a story in which she represents order or in which she's simply a, a human being uh, and doesn't necessarily have a symbolic valence at all. So we just have a different way of explaining the world. Now, it's to some extent, uh, various ways of explaining the world don't have to be in conflict. It can be... Uh, di- it can be a kind of language for getting at truth. And so it's not like Jordan and I have to go outside and, and punch each other until we decide whether Jung was right or not. Uh, it is simply a different kind of language. Uh, I think that my um, I, I tend to be more uh, individualistic in my regard for stories. I don't believe that every story is necessarily a parable. I don't believe that every story can necessarily be um, turned into a metaphor for something else. But I believe that stories like life uh, experiences teach things to us, human truths to us, because they teach us things about ourselves and about the human soul. And the human soul is uh, a thing. You know, we do have a, a joint a way of being humans, but we also have this highly individuated way of being human. So I do have a different way of looking at it. I would not make the statement, oh, women represent chaos and men represent order. That's not something that would come out of my mouth because it's not the way I look at the world. Uh, but again, you can have different ways of looking at things that do get to the truth. And so it's not necessarily a conflict, but it is very, very different. We have very different ways. I mean, we've talked about this on the show together. We have very different ways of uh, understanding human humanity and understanding the spiritual journey that we're on all on. Uh, and I will stop there. If you are not a subscriber, I don't know what you're thinking, especially because you only have one day to get 40% off your subscription by going to dailywire.com slash subscribe and using code do not comply. Do that today and you will get 40% off. And then you too can feel that you are contributing 
to the fight that we are in. Uh, if you are a subscriber, stay tuned. We got member block coming up. If not, sorry, that's I, I can't even watch what's going to happen to you now.